Welcome back to season two of Showing Our Sass. I'm your host, Marta Gwynn, and this season, I'm going to be introducing you to a number of people who I dearly love in life, beginning with my mother, Dr. Marta D. Collier. We're going to talk about unboxing potential and just let the conversation go where it may. So I hope that you will enjoy that we're going to have quite a lot of good conversations this season. I want to introduce you to all kinds of people who have helped to better my life and whose life I hope that I have better. And I want you to know a little bit more about what it is that they're doing in life. So hang on tight. We're going to have some fun this season, trying a little something new, and I hope you enjoy it. Here we go with season two of Showing Our Sass. Are you excited? Yes. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on to season two of Showing Our Sass. I know that you have had, well, see, I, I did what I said I wasn't going to do. All right. I need to look at you, not my camera. All right. Thank you so much for joining me for season two of Showing Our Sass. Uh, I'm pretty sure you saw several episodes of season one. In fact, you were on season one, so you're one of my returnees. <laughs> Um, but we're throwing all that out and we're going to try something different this year uh, where we're going to do a little bit more structure because I really want to um, explore the ideas of unboxing our potential. Uh, I think that this last year has taught all of us a lot about um, taking a beat and thinking about are we living our lives as fully as we possibly can. And I think it's given us a chance to kind of assess things. So that's kind of the general framework of what we're doing. Um, I sent you a couple of questions ahead of time so you can look through them to be comfortable. Uh, do you have any other questions before we get going? I think I'm good. Well, can we start off first by having you introduce yourself to our listeners? <laughs> I'm Dr. Marta Collier. I'm an educational consultant and retired university professor based out of Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, it is my pleasure uh, to be on with uh, Marta Collier Youngblood. I love your show. It's been fabulous being a part of it, uh, but even more so being able to follow you and uh, the journey that you have been on, uh, pursuing topics you're passionate about and uh, working to become a voice uh, for your community uh, so that we could be better informed and uh, have fun along the way. I've, I've truly enjoyed following you. And here's the fun part. I didn't pay her to say that, but she is my mama, y'all. Y'all <laughs> see it in the face. You see it in the face. Um, it's just how we do. But uh, I do want us to just have fun in this too, though. So y'all, we just gonna have a conversation. My mom and I talk like this all the time. <laughs> so we're gonna have some fun uh, uh, chopping it up today because that's how we do this. So we're going to start off with the first question. Um, what is one thing you wish you had known when you began your career? The importance of networking. Uh, that's not something that I truly understood um, uh, early on. Um, and it's something I'm still learning about uh, at this in this season of my life. Um, it's it's very important to to tap into the wealth of people and their experiences around you, the experiences they have had, uh, particularly people who are willing to share um, and to fight the tendency of going it alone. Uh, that's something that uh, seems to be a trend uh, among many people, particularly younger people 
uh, who seem to feel that they've, they've got to prove something by just putting whatever it is they're dealing with on their backs and running with it on their own. Um, and nobody accomplishes anything significant on their own. Uh, there are always uh, other people, other resources that they have tapped into, whether they admit it or not. And the ease of your journey is in, impacted or the difficulty of it by the number of people that you uh, embrace and their experiences as you go along the way. And I think what you're surprised to find out is there are many people who are willing, they're more than willing uh, to share what they know, to uh, make you a part of their network and get the word out about what you're doing. And if there are resources they can connect you with, uh, be a part of doing that because they believe in what you're doing. They believe in you and they want you to be successful. They know if you're successful, it's an uplift to the entire community. And so, yes, uh, the importance of networking uh, is something I wish <laughs> desperately that I had been more attuned to in my younger days. Well, do you think that maybe you being on the tail end of the baby boomer generation trended you toward a little more of self-reliance over necessarily looking to build a, a, a large team around you? Um, that's a good question. Um, and the, my answer, honest answer is I'm not sure because as I think back on my growing up with, with you know, my parents, your grandparents, um, there was a strong sense of community uh, around us and people were very centrally connected uh, uh, during that period of time. We lived in the same neighborhoods where we went to school, where we went to church. We knew our neighbors. We interacted with each other. People sat out on their porches. Kids played in the street. Um, our churches were connected to each other and worked together and shared resources. So I tend to think that, uh, and, and, and let me, let me, uh, uh, make a clarification our parents are of the the great generation <laughs> the greatest generation um uh we are the the product of that you're the boomers you're the baby boomers yes and so i i think that they had a greater sense of community we benefited from that in our younger days uh but probably by the time we launched on our own, we were going into some odd, uncharted territory for us. Mm -hmm. uh, many of us were integrating uh, majority institutions when we went to college. Um, we were going away from home and away from our uh, network, our, our base of support. And I think felt that we were in a sense on our own. I left Savannah, Georgia, and went to Indiana. I went to the Midwest uh, to a place where everything from the dialect to the language to, to the weather was strange to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I did feel uh, somewhat cut off and on my own in terms of, of how I made it or not. Uh, so yes, I guess the baby boomers were a part of that uh, great migration of a sort where we were moving out and moving into areas that perhaps had not been as explored by you know our parents and grandparents those who had gone before and uh may have felt the need to to carry that burden 
more on our own. Um, also, for myself, having been pretty much in 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 enshrouded in an African American community, my experience with whiteness was a do, new thing. Um, never, never had that kind of close contact with white people. And that was the majority of the people that I found myself surrounded by from the time I left uh, home for college to when I actually retired and moved back to Georgia. Can we explore uh, a little bit for a second? Um, I want to make sure the listeners can understand. So you were born and raised in Savannah, Georgia. Yes. Um, and, you know, right now people might have a perception of the state of Georgia as being a majority black state, when in fact it is not. Um, a lot of people think about Atlanta, but Savannah is located on the southeast coast mm -hmm. of Georgia. And mm -hmm. so when you're saying that you um, had a very new experience with whiteness uh, when you moved and went to uh, Richmond, Indiana, I think it is, yeah. um, to Richmond, oh, Indiana, in, uh, in eastern Indiana. Yeah. In east. Yeah. yeah. Close to Dayton, Ohio, not far mm -hmm. away from Dayton and Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you're saying that in Savannah, um, you were in black Savannah as opposed to the greater sec segmentation of Savannah, Chatham County still being a very segregated county. Yeah, there um, yeah. was. So I just want to understand the context of how you're saying you could you could be born and reared in Georgia, but not have had a lot of exposure to white people. Oh yes, I, I grew up in a black world, and and that's that's the way things were shaped. Uh, I would tend to think in most African American communities around the country, we may have lived in uh, areas where we were surrounded by uh, white communities, but never the twain met for the most part in terms of our interaction. Our schools were black, our churches were black, our communities were black. Um, you know, we could not go to school with whites. We could not live in white communities. Um, we, even the transportation, you know, was different. Fortunately, I never was a bus rider, you know, because my, my family was fortunate to have a car. So we could always get where we wanted to go. But I remember uh, shopping downtown and uh, my father and mother being there with nine kids ready to spend significant money and a white person come in and the salesperson having to stop with us and go to the white customer. That's mm -hmm. the way it was, the white and colored water fountains. I was snatched away from the white fountain because I knew that was the cold water uh, when I was in J.C. Penney's one day. So uh, you actually lived, you saw white yeah. only signs. Yeah, in color. I, lived, I lived it. Um, and things were on the move for change at that time as they had been for generations. The civil rights movement is hundreds of years old. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of what life was like for me, I lived a very segregated uh, life, which had its wonderful benefits as well as disadvantages because there were things that we had no uh, access to. I lived uh, not far away from a beach. <laughs> I didn't go get to go and swim in that water on Tyler Island. Heck no. My father would have been arrested. You know, very bad things would have happened. We mm -hmm. had to to uh, put caravans together to go to the black beach over in South Carolina, Johnson Beach or American Beach. 
in South Carolina. You had to leave the state to be able to go to yes. the beach as a family yes. because Tybee yes. Island was not accessible to you. Only if I was a worker. If I was a worker going out on the island to clean homes or to do some type of, of labor on the island for white folk, that's the only way you got to go. Uh, you know, these were days of having the buses that would bus black workers out to the island. And you would see uh, black women on every corner waiting to catch the bus to go work in a white woman's house uh, mm -hmm. in the kitchen. My grandmother was a domestic uh professional and i and i say that deliberately because these were extremely skilled women uh who ran uh households uh for all of the whites of a certain class uh back in the day as i grew up and uh, extremely skilled they would take care and raise those kids and take care of those households and then come home and take care of their own um they were leaders in their churches and in their communities and in their children's schools they were amazing women um, and so when I saw the movie, The Help, uh, The Help was my growing up. I, I remember that uh, extremely well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, we grew up in a black world, although there were many whites surrounding us, uh, never the twain met back in my day. And I think this is something that is important to help people have a, an appropriate context for. So when you hear a story about a, a Black Wall Street, so Greenwood in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, you know, I think sometimes people misunderstand why there are some who say we need to go back to some of that because those folks had to live together because they really were not encouraged to live mixed in with whites. And the difference with Greenwood and many other communities that people don't like to talk about that were black run is that when people figured out if they had their own shops and they kept their money circulating in their communities, that they could do better for themselves than being reliant on having that kind of uh, customer service you were dealing with where you your family was pushed to the side to tend to a white family. I mean, your money was the same color, but your service was very disproportionate. Um, so it, it, but I don't think people understand really that non, I hate majority as a term, but um, majority minority, but to that's what we were. For minority communities, we often found safety and solace and well-being in villages within the greater white community and integration changed that it did it did because there was a black wall street in every community because mm -hmm. there had to be um there were certain services that smart black entrepreneurs back in the day got into funeral homes uh we could not be buried out of a white uh, funeral home uh shoe shops uh dressmakers uh milliners women who made hats um uh mechanics my you know my grandfather your great grandfather uh was a, a skilled mechanic and uh made a very good living uh mm -hmm. uh where he it, it was called ogichi wrecking company uh when i was growing up uh uh so we, we had people who delivered the mail black uh postal people uh delivered the mail uh to our homes i think the only white person is <laughs> so funny that would come into our community to deliver something was the, the milkman uh, mm -hmm. because they would not hire 
uh, African-Americans to deliver. Now, I'm sure they were working in warehouses. They would sometimes hire us for that kind of thing, but not for actually going, you know, door to door. But, you know, we had our own economic systems. We had black banks uh, because there was a significant need uh, for that in our communities. Mm -hmm. And you, I think you still got better service uh, in uh, the African-American bank from time to time because of the respect level. Mm -hmm. um, though we were fortunate, our, our father was like many uh, African-American elders in, in, at that time, uh, built a sense of respect with whoever he, he dealt with. He was also a minister and, you know, some of the better white thinking white people at the time, you know, did have a respect for the collar, for, for, for men of the cloth. Um, so and he was also a, a soldier. So there, he there was, was a veteran and he was also a teacher, uh, and later a counselor in the, in the school district there. Um, so yes. And, and oh, of course our schools, our schools were segregated. So we had an entire system that operated alongside the white system. And it was only when those systems were forced to try to come together that we generally had clashes in Savannah. Now there were other places uh, where there were more negative encounters. There were some uh, in Savannah as well as the civil rights movement uh, heated up uh, because we had people who were pressing for integration of schools and of businesses for black folk to be able to get jobs and be hired as cashiers and in, in, in places where they would not hire us. Um, but we were, we were pretty much shrouded from that, except in cases uh, like the one I referred to where my mother had to, you know, snatch me away from the water fountain before I made a, what could have been a tragic mistake. Um, you learned what the rules were and you tried to abide by the rules as much as you could. Um, uh, but people always have their sense of pride, their sense of ownership of their own things. And we patronize those people. Mm -hmm. uh, I never will forget Mr. Rainey. He was the shoemaker. He was a cobbler and he would have this uh, apron on and the shop smelled of shoe dye. Uh, whenever I think of him, I, I can remember the smells and the sounds and the sights. And he was the sweetest man, um, a, a sincere professional, saved our parents a lot of money. With nine kids, there were a lot of shoes that needed to be repaired. So um, the notion that you couldn't get good customer service if you were dealing with a black business, that, that oh, is not the experience that you had, no, up, nor no. was the idea of buying from a black person because legally you had no choice but to, well, no, you had a choice, but uh, if you chose to buy from whites, you had to deal with how they wanted to serve you. And there were some places we could not go. They would not let us in. Uh, so um, We Buy Black is an old, uh, 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 old may sound negative, but it's, it's not a new idea. Mm -hmm. uh, that's it's come back around in a cycle. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. We have a street called uh, West Broad Street and that's where the shoe store was, Robin's Shoe Store. <laughs> where we went to get shoes. Uh, oftentimes, even though there were times when my parents went to, you know, the the bigger stores, but, you know, we shopped along uh, that that street. And, uh, you know, we, we did business as much as possible uh, in those communities. Um, those were our friends, our colleagues, uh, people that we knew, Crosby Drugstore, you know, we, yeah, I, though I think the, I think the druggist was still, 
white, but that was the black drug story. It was in our community and that's where black folk went. Um, mm -hmm. And I never remember being disrespected in there. Um, mm -hmm. So there, there were people, even whites at the time who knew how to uh, show good customer service to uh, the folks in the community. But, you know, I, I, I digress, but yes, that, that experience of growing up in uh, a rich and comfortable uh, environment um, with a lot of good memories is, is real for me. Doesn't mean it was a perfect world, none are. Uh, but I feel very blessed to have grown up at the time I did, to have been impacted by the people uh, who poured into me, teachers, ministers, community people, uh, because they all wanted us to be successful. It was all about the race. You know, we were race people. So it, it mattered mm -hmm. that you grew up and you became something that contributed back to your community. And they set an example for those coming behind you, whether you became a, a, a skilled trades person where you were, uh, went off to school and, you know, got some education that allowed you to do other things, whatever it was, you were expected uh, to do well. That, that, that was the way it was. It was a culture that you constructed and that you protected um, by essentially building a wall of, of sorts. It, it, was, it was a wall around that community so that you could afford each other protection in, in a way. Young people. Yeah, you had to protect. you, And, and that's that's still true today. You had it, to protect. You isn't know. it interesting, though, that that's seen as being a negative, like you're being standoffish. But if you were to change the lens and you look to see this is the same thing that you see in the Greek Orthodox community, the same thing you oh, see yeah. in the Jewish community. Yes. Um, when when they say, you know, we will deal with the world, but we are going to protect our culture. Uh, but when you then turn it around to African American culture, it it's it, all of a sudden, no, we want to get in. We want to we want to get into that culture from from outside people. And I I think people don't understand we have a need to feed and protect our culture as well and our values i i i think there's a, a lot uh uh right about that um i i think every community knows its story better than anybody else and is better equipped to tell that story um and the individual that story needs to be told to most importantly are the young people coming along because they're the ones whose turn will come where they have to pick up the mantle and be able to succeed uh, uh, in their own right. And our churches have been, for the most part, the bastions that have, and our HBCUs, mm -hmm. our historically black colleges and universities. Our black institutions. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Those have been the two most powerful pieces. And, and, and our historically black K-12 institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some of those like Crispus Attucks in Indianapolis and uh, there are others uh, in the South, um, you know, uh, Beach Institute, which became Beach High School, uh, where uh, I graduated from, where my mother graduated from, um, and others were the, the places where people uh, held the intellectual wealth and saw it as their responsibility to pass that on mm -hmm. and equip young people to go further than, than they were able to go. Mm -hmm. um, and so you had, we were blessed. We had people who could have been doctors, lawyers, chemists, business people, corporate uh, executives, who those doors were closed to, who became teachers. Mm -hmm. And so 
they they poured into us because they saw us as being able to go uh, to places that, that where the doors were shut to them. And that's actually what happened. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that there's a need for that to continue for every generation. I don't care what race, uh, ethnic group you come from, you must pour your experiences, your intellectual wealth, your wisdom into your young people so that they can go forward and be successful and take your community farther than they were able to go uh, in your day. That's that's how we thrive. That's mm -hmm. how we thrive. Now, you mentioned you are the eldest of nine and you made a decision to leave Savannah. The, you're the daughter of HBCU alumni um, who attended Savannah State. Yes. What went into the decision-making process for you to leave home and go so far away? I think you went the furthest of any of your siblings to go to college for undergrad. I did. I did. Um, my father was a high school counselor and I watched him advise other young people uh, into colleges and universities. Um, a lot, a lot of them at the time were going to schools in the South. Some of them were HBCUs, uh, but others of them were beginning to integrate uh, the University of Georgia, you know, other majority institutions. And I watched that process. And I was also aware of what was going on on the national scale as black students went out to try to integrate uh, majority institutions in the South. And what year was Hmm? What year was this? Just for context. I graduated 1970 uh, from high school. So I was right on the cusp of that whole integration piece. Uh, I remember George Wallace standing in the door and, you know, declaring that, you know, segregation yesterday, segregation today, segregation forever, you mm -hmm. know, in, in terms of the University of Alabama and his entire state. Um, but uh, my dad was actually counseling people into the University of Georgia, and I was watching what was happening. My cousin uh, was part of, of, of integrating white schools. And um, I frankly did not want that experience for myself. Um, I, I understood that there were people who needed to, to do that, uh, but I wanted to get out of the South. I had, had, I had lived that experience for 17 years. And I believe there was a world beyond the Mason-Dixon line where there were better things. And I want to be a part of that. And not and for nothing, Brown v. Board happened in 1954. And you just said you graduated from high school in 1970. Yes. So, so people can understand that the court decision said integrate the schools, but you still were integrating schools in 1970. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, because what happened um, was that whites resisted the whole integration piece by leaving public schools or relegating certain, you know, courting off certain schools for whites that, where they still maintain the majority. Um, and, you know, blacks were, were relegated or, you know, so many of them were accepted. And the, the, the time there was made so unpleasant. Um, uh, I, I imagine there are a lot of folk who still want to forget, you know, those times. They were very difficult. There was there was a lot of, of agitation, a lot of attacks. Um, it was a rough period of time. And it's still not 
uh, integrated. Um, in, in Savannah, most black kids go to school with black kids and most white kids go to school with white kids. That's the way it is. They call them private academies, uh, church schools, whatever you want to call it. Charters. Uh, yeah. the, it's, it's mainly black people remaining in the public school system and whites who can afford it have largely gone uh, to private institutions. Uh, and even to the point where they will build a public uh, school for whites and a public school for blacks right up to road. <laughs> I mean, that's still going on and wow. on. Um, so yes, it's it, there's still a lot of segregation, uh, whether you want to call it physical, political, economic. Um, there's still a lot of segregation uh, throughout the country, not just in, in my hometown, but throughout the country. But you uh, didn't so want to be part of the integrating groups you were saying. So, um, I, sorry, I took you off a little bit. I want to bring you back on. So when you were choosing schools, where did you really want to go? Was Earlham the place you really wanted to go? Or is it where you ended up? Uh, Earlham was a place I chose uh, because it was recommended by a dear family friend. Uh, whose daughter had considered it. Uh, it was high on her list, but she chosen to go to uh, another school. But I chose Earlham because it had a, a faith base. It's a Quaker-based uh, school. Uh, I like the philosophy. Uh, Quakers have, many, for generations, been uh, abolitionists. Uh, they were also part of the Underground Railroad. Um, I like their philosophy of live and let live. You know, they were peaceful people. Um, and I thought that a school that derived from those uh, beginnings might be the kind of place that would be accepting of me. Um, I also thought the Midwest would be an escape from the racism and the segregation that I knew I would encounter if I went to a majority institution uh, in the South. Um, and, and I was not recruited by an HBCU. The HBCU experience was one my parents shared, um, but things had changed from the time they were in school to when it came time for me to go to college. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and also it was the trend. Uh, if people felt you capable to be a part of that integration movement into majority schools, uh, but and, and and largely, I think outside of the South, that's where we were being recruited. Programs were being, you know, designed and implemented. University of Indiana and others, you know, uh, those in the in the far north, were actively recruiting more people of color into Iowa, Ohio State, Iowa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know, I was a part of that whole milieu. So Earlham, uh, Earlham worked for me. Earlham also. Um, was open to all students, you know, uh, and I was, I wanted a school that did not cordon students off. I wanted a school where everything was open uh, to students. You didn't have to be in a certain group or a certain organization. Um, and it was small. It was a smaller school. Mm -hmm. I also did not want to be a, you know, a, a, a drop in the, a big C. I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to be recognized and seen and visible. Um, and so, yes, all those kinds of things are what went into my decision in terms of choosing Earlham. So you didn't grow up thinking and dreaming about going to Spelman or anything like that? Um, again, Spelman was in the South. Nothing mm -hmm. against uh, Spelman, but I wanted to leave the South. I, 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 I've been in the South all mm -hmm. my life to that point, and I wanted something beyond uh, that, that boundary. 
You had that adventurous uh, spirit. That a wonderful, a wonderful uh, experience. Uh, I know people who went there. Uh, they they treasured the experience. They were blessed by it. They have colleagues and friends uh, from it. Spelman is is a premier institution. I mean, I might not have been accepted to Spelman. I mean, so let's not assume they would have even let me in. Well, now you you're the daughter of a minister who was you know two degreed and 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 had a reputation statewide, and you had good grades. So you know, I I, I don't buy that. Uh, but but it is interesting that um, it is interesting that you were not recruited by Spelman. I think um, being where you were, and I, I've always been a little curious about that. But I I know I've I've taken you down a down a little rabbit hole on that one. So let me let me bring us back on and say. Um, and you can interpret this however you like. What is your biggest failure or learning opportunity um, as you as you look back over your life? Not having become more of a scribe of my experiences, um, a writer. Um, you know, there's a, a saying, you know, if it's not written down, it doesn't exist. Um, and if I could change something about my journey, I would have I would have been a more disciplined and prolific recorder of those thoughts, of those experiences, of those ideas. Um, I'm a very oral person. Um, I love orally sharing uh, my experiences. Um, it's something that I, I truly enjoy, as well as you know, hearing uh, those of others. Um, but it's important to record things because it has to go beyond you. And um, if I could change something, I, I do feel that is something that I lack uh, in, in my experience to not have written more mm -hmm. about what I experienced and, and, and the ideas that came about from those experiences. Okay. Uh, similar to that, probably, what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? And before you get into that, you might want to outline a little bit what your career path was broadly, starting with uh, going into teaching in the K-12 classrooms. I became a uh, certified teacher uh, in Terre Haute, Indiana. I was certified in Indiana first because I graduated from Earlham with my teaching certificate. And my first job uh, was an urban school in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, it was a wonderful experience for me. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of my principal. She was amazing um, and really was a very influential person. Uh, in in my experience um, as a very, very young professional. Uh, but she was working very hard to create this oasis of education in a very rough neighborhood, rough community, um, and just was, she was a light in the darkness uh, for me uh, and for that entire community and uh, has had more impact on my life than she will ever know. Um, I, I'm not even sure she's still on this side with us now, but I, I'm truly indebted to her for the time she sat me down and advised me, corrected me, encouraged me. Um, and I was there barely half a year. Uh, but I think out of all of the administrators that I worked for, 
uh, she was definitely the most influential. Sometimes the first person is the, the most. I'm curious, what was her ethnicity? Mm -hmm. What was her ethnicity? She was African-American. She was okay. African-American um, and a very proud um, and intentional leader. Um, she was very wise in how she steered people. She had an integrated faculty, uh, different ages, different genders, but she knew which buttons to push for everybody. And she had some very non-compliant people on her, on her uh, staff, mm -hmm. uh, but to a person, uh, she, she had on her business and those children benefited as a, a result uh, of it. Uh, but yes, I, I, I never will f uh, forget the, the impact she had on my life. So you had a real quality mentor coming out um, we did. Job. I, I, her first name, I think, was Winonia. I want to say Batson Winonia. It's like coming to me as I as I, <laughs> I talk about her. But it's clear she made a, a strong impact on you. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Tara Hope is in the service area of Indiana State, is it not? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, do you remember having any kind of relationship uh, between the school that you were working in in Indiana State for the time when you were teaching in Terre Haute? No, unfortunately, I did not. Um, I am connected, my only connection to Indiana State at that time was through uh, a friend and colleague who did her uh, teaching degree at Indiana State. Uh, because I, I learned through watching her, we both worked in the same summer program, at my college, we were both in Upward Bound uh, counselors. And this was a, a program to help steer uh, young high school people from urban and rural areas uh, towards college. You know, it was a college prep type of summer program. Mm -hmm. uh, it was actually, it was run year round, but we were summer counselors. And as I watched her prepare her work for the students that we were assigned, I noticed a difference in her preparation and in mine. And it was, it was amazing because she had specific lessons on a lesson plan, preparation, objectives, um, uh, learning styles. She knew a lot of things that I had not gotten from my program, though I love my program. It was, it was a more generalist oriented uh, program uh, where the people where she uh, studied really drilled down into the nuts and bolts of putting a learning environment and a curriculum together. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I've had high respect for Indiana State from that experience. I don't know what their program is like now, but that particular colleague uh, was was trained in an amazing way. Two programs in the same state, one at a uh, private college and one at a public university. So uh, just to show that there can be a lot of diversity in there. And so from Indiana, you then moved to Georgia, correct? And we're teaching? Uh, yes. Um, uh, I, we got, uh, I got married uh, in Indiana that uh, first year of, of, of teaching. My husband graduated college. No, actually, we oh, actually went you went to Iowa to first. Yes, first he time. went to law school. Uh, so, and I pursued uh, my master's degree. Mm -hmm. um, and began teaching actually in Iowa. So that, that was my rural and majority uh, white uh, community teaching experience. 
that, that started then. Um, as a very young professional, I was dropped down in the middle of Iowa. <laughs> and uh, so another yeah. baptism by whiteness. <laughs> That's a so first in college and then and, and then over to Iowa, yeah. Eastern Iowa. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's I, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world because as I as I watch people now, um, I actually lived in communities of people that I'm observing now and how life has impacted them. Um, I, I taught majority of white kids from rural, rural Midwest, uh, uh, rural, rural Iowa, America. Rural <laughs> America. Um, and I learned that kids are kids. Um, I was their teacher and they were my students. And so I did not have that whole racism piece in terms of my direct interaction with the kids. That was something that came, you know, with some of the adults that 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 came into the picture. Um, but I learned a lot about America. I learned a lot about the the middle part of America because of the years that I lived and worked uh, in the Midwest, and um, you know, have a have a better, as I said, understanding of of how they may be reading things at this point in time because it's it, it's still a somewhat isolated uh, group. Mm -hmm. um, I never will forget um, working with a little girl who came from a family. It was an impoverished family. Hunting was one of the ways they put food on the table. And the hunting dogs were extremely valuable in that family. Um, and, you know, that that had an impact on some of the other members of the family. Um, th so there were there were things we tried to supply and 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 ways we tried to support uh, these children that came from sometimes some very challenging uh, situations. Well, I learned that I did not know. So it yeah. sounds like the family would make a decision to go ahead and invest maybe in the hunting dogs more than they did in the child with their educational needs and whatnot too. I'll say it. <laughs> yeah, particularly female children. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I began to learn about gender differences mm -hmm. uh, when I was working, uh, you know, in the Midwest. And this is not, this is not only in the Midwest. It's just where I began to encounter it because I was working as professional in the schools at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but Yes, I mean, I, I guess I got what I asked for. I left Georgia and I got dropped right down. Sounds like going to another country, right? It was very much, very much like a different country. Um, you know, my my pattern of speech. Um, you know, my my southern accent. Yeah, uh, you know, which I never got rid of, which is so funny. All the years I spent outside of the South. Um, but I I find. The good Lord helped me to 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 bra uh, uh, blaze a, a path there, mm -hmm. and I learned so much. Um, that's where I encountered technology when we went to Iowa and the way it was changing. My first exposure to an Apple IIe uh, uh, computer, I actually learned what that was when I left the South and went to the Midwest uh, and began. Uh, getting these things and bringing them home because, you know, we had you guys, you and your brother at that time, and we began so, to expose you to it. And that was the second tour of duty that you did. So uh, let me make sure I'm, I'm storyboarding this right. So 1970, you land in rural Indiana, 
And then from there, you went to Terre Haute, where you were in a slightly more uh, urban uh, community. And from there, you then went to Iowa City, Iowa, um, and were there for the portion of time while uh, dad was in law school and you were finishing your master's. Yeah. Um, so you both graduate from Iowa when and then moved to Georgia. Ah, uh, that was, let's see, 70... I think 70, no. It had to be 77, 78-ish. 78, I think. Dad graduated from, from law school. Okay. And so then then you made another cross-country trip move to Georgia. It had to be about, because you you were you were yeah. certainly yeah. in Georgia yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the years are stacking up. <laughs> Memories. Well, I just want to help everybody. We're, we're drawing a roadmap of your career. So college and then started your career not far from where you went to college mm -hmm. and then a neighboring state. Uh, you got some more education and, and training exposure. So um, you've encountered like the Quaker communities, the Amish communities, the, no, nice. the yeah. mashed up, blended uh, Germanic and Swedish and and all of those other kind of European cultures that found their way through wagons and cars and trains into the Midwest that have built their own kinds of cultures. Um, the culture of Southern Indiana is different from Northwest Indiana, is different from uh, Eastern Iowa, is very different from Wisconsin and, and Minnesota. And so I think because that region of the country is designated in the flyover states category, there are some people on the East Coast and West Coast who may not appreciate the diversity of, of, of the Midwest, the middle of the country, the breadbasket. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you made a decision as a 17 year old that you wanted to know <laughs> more about the world. And so you did, you picked up and you went and you did. And then you came home. Now. Uh, Tell us a little bit about why it is that you came back to Georgia and Savannah in particular. Well, that was really uh, my husband, your father, uh, uh, pursuing his dream of a law practice. Uh, and I'm not quite sure why the South. Um, he just simply wanted to do it someplace outside of his hometown because he wanted to do it on his own. And he was uh, from the Midwest. He had not grown up yes, a southern a southern at all. Yes, yes no. He's he's he Chicago boy. <laughs> Harbor from the Harbor. East Chicago, Indiana, which is like a stone's throw uh, from the city. So yes, he's very much uh, uh, of that of that ilk. He was but, in Lake County. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know whether uh, in his time of courting me and going back and forth. Uh, with our family, uh, that had some impact on him. Also, Atlanta was exploding at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody wanted to come to Atlanta. Um, things were really on the move as they continue to be to this day. And so I think a lot of people saw this opportunity. He actually thought we were going to land in Atlanta, uh, but the opportunities opened up in Savannah. And so that's that's where we ended up going. And I'm really looking forward to getting him to dig into that too. But I did want to understand the... Uh, the context of making another move when you had said so adamantly you wanted to experience something outside of the South that you came back as uh, as your husband, my father, was yeah. looking to go ahead and begin his professional career in Savannah, Georgia, uh, in the law. Uh, so that brings us to 
1978, 79 ish. Um, shortly after that, your lives changed again. <laughs> Dramatically. That's when my story starts, folks. But that's not what this is about today. So um, I'm gonna. I want to make sure we had that um, established, that timeline established, because that's your early career, um, mm -hmm. so that you could now come back around and say, what advice would you give to someone who is wanting to pursue a career as a K-12 teacher? Spend time in schools prior to your decision to enter a program as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Spend time. There are opportunities to volunteer, whether it's an after-school program, um, a summer program, uh, an early childhood program. Uh, I would really encourage people to, to, to spend time around kids and in um, an educational environment so you get some sense as to your level of comfort uh, in that environment for kids, whether they're younger or older, um, and your level of passion to pursue that. And get a good feel for the economics of a choice like that because the the sense of a career ladder for teachers is not often as clear as it possibly should be mm -hmm. and to build a career simply as a classroom teacher as important as that is can have some significant impacts on your future in terms of economic stability, uh, access to other opportunities, ability to uh, buy homes and build savings and so forth, because you don't make all the money in the world uh, in many places. Um, teachers are not paid what they should be paid. And so I'm very realistic. In the US. At least in the U.S., yes, yes, and you know, some some countries are eating our lunch, when, depending on how you look at it. Um, if if you are into you know going overseas for those opportunities, uh, but you need to take a a wide look, <laughs> a very deep look at what is entailed in becoming a K twelve classroom teacher. Um, I think there's no better place to cut your teeth in terms of education because you really learn where the pavement meets the road. You learn about human intellect and the development of that. You learn about all of the social emotional pieces that come into play. You learn about the different types of, of, of learning styles that they are out there, uh, the different levels of preparation that people bring when they come to a learning environment and how you have to cook that soup you know, one way or another, um, and all of the political and and other types of interfaces that you uh, end up dealing with, um, anywhere from decisions you have to make about what goes on in your classroom that may be at odds with your administrator, uh, but you believe that these children need this, and if there's a way for you to get it to them, you're going to do that. Um, sometimes you become a, a what do they call it? A, Sounds like an advocate. A, an advocate, but a guerrilla fighter. That, mm -hmm. That's the word I used to use when I was training teachers. Sometimes you become a guerrilla fighter and you find ways of doing things that are not done. Uh, 
uh, because there may be edicts that come down to tell you thou shalt not teach these children this. And you know, that's exactly what they need. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you don't want to lose your job. But, you know, I, I always told my students, if there is a way, a, a, a legal and appropriate way for you to make it happen, what needs to happen, I encourage you to do that because you have these kids one time. This is that one opportunity they have, you know, for that grade in your class. And the very thing that they get or miss from you could have a significant impact on them going forward. So really, really know what you're getting into. Uh, one of the, the saddest things for me is somebody who becomes bitter because that's the choice they made. And in their mind, it didn't happen for them, whatever it was. Um, because to me, there is no greater pursuit outside of the ministry. And I see teaching as a ministry as well. Um, but that too often happens because I think people were not clear as, as they should have been about what they were getting into. And that's as it should be for any profession. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one should not have a problem with seeing blood if you want to go into the medical profession, <laughs> you know, or being around sick people. Um, you know, if you want to be in the medical profession, you, you need to know things like that before you make all that time and investment. Well, are you comfortable being around children when they're good, bad, and ugly, uh, dealing with their parents, dealing with classroom environments that may or may not be up to snuff, um, you know, having to make overnight decisions like our teachers now going from in-person to virtual learning. They didn't have anything to say about that. They just all of a sudden had to do it with no, no, no uh, uh, pre-warning about it. And they're still wrestling with it. And many of them feeling bad because they know that what they're delivering isn't what they could deliver if they were in person classroom. Mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of profession this is. And it's a very, very important profession. It's critical work, um, but it's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'll be the first one to say that. So know thyself. <laughs> so you you don't believe in the you don't believe in that mantra. It, uh, those who can't do teach. You don't, you you it doesn't sound like you believe in that. Okay. Those who can't do teach badly. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that one. Because <laughs> you got to be able to do. I mean, I had the privilege of growing up seeing you teach my whole life, and I mean, I've never seen that as something that was quote unquote easy. But I want to uh, point out, you mentioned that you train teachers. So can you talk to us a little bit about the transition that you made from being in the classroom as a uh, as a classroom teacher to training teachers? <laughs> uh, I taught for many years, um, left the profession for a time. I took a break and during that time resolved that I wanted to go back to it. Uh, but this time as one who trained teachers to hopefully perform better than I felt I did to be better prepared than, uh, to be able to be more successful in their situation, to see what the possibilities were and how we could make change in terms of how education was done. Uh, so yes, it was a it was kind of an advocate, instigator, agitator attitude that kicked me back into graduate school to get a PhD and then to enter the academy to train teachers. Um, you went in I, a rabble rouser. 
listen, it's good to know where it comes I from. Mean, what, what was John Lewis say? Good trouble? Uh, you, there's good, all kinds of good trouble. I just say, people assume that I get some of my, you know, from my daddy, but I don't think they get to see the fact how much of it comes from my mama. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, some of us are not as noisy with what we do, but we nonetheless have to bend or even break some rules uh, sometimes if we feel that is what is called for, if that is uh, for the greater good. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, yes, there, there are going to be some times. I mean, I was I was told by the district early childhood people in Savannah at that time not to teach kindergartners how to read. Now, that sounds like what? in today's uh, environment, but we were actually told by the director uh, for the district, we were not allowed to teach kindergartners to read. Um, and so I knew I had some children who were ready. I went upstairs to the reading specialist, Miss Janet Bowers, bless her heart. I love her to this day. Uh, one of the other most influential uh, people in my life. And she shut her door and explained the situation. She went to her shelf. She pulled some materials off. She told me, you close your door. You teach these children with these materials. And when you're done, you open your door and you go on about the rest of your business. <laughs> That's what I did. And those children learn how to read. Mm -hmm. And I taught that to my students, you know, for the rest of my career. Sometimes you have to find ways to do things that are not done. Mm -hmm. um, and fortunately, thank the Lord, I was able to do that. Um, so, yes. Um, sometimes that's what's called for. Listen, y'all, she's scrappy. <laughs> I have a job. Don't let the sweet smile fool you. She's scrappy. And I'm proud of that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so it, it's I, I like the advice that you gave on that one, but I do want to give you a chance to go ahead and give just some just one piece of advice to someone who decides to make a transition from the K-12 classroom into higher ed. What is the best piece of advice you could give someone who decides to pursue a faculty position in higher ed in education? Find an advocate. Find an advocate in that college, on that campus, wherever you are, that will tell you the truth. That will tell you the truth about what it takes to not only survive, but to thrive in that environment. Mm -hmm. You need a truth teller. You need a truth teller. Uh, because there are too many people who will give you a line, the party line, knowing full well that that is not what's going to help you be successful, particularly as a woman and a person of color. And I was both in a situation that I went into. Mm -hmm. uh, your dad and I like to say we invited ourselves. At the time we went to the academy, we were still few in number. We're still few in number, but we were even fewer at that time. Mm -hmm. And we were significantly not wanted uh, you know, by a lot of people who we encountered. There were people who felt there was no need for us to be there. There were HBCUs, you know, that's where you people go. Um, we were an intrusion. We were taking up space for uh, other folk like them. Um, they had very little experience or exposure to working with African-Americans uh, in, the, in, the, in academia. Um, it was very, it was very limited and limiting 
situation. So we really, we really ended up crashing through the door. That's <laughs> if I can describe my academic career. I mean, I, I'm seeing, a, I am seeing a theme here. I'm seeing a theme of, you know, here you were a child of integration. You know, I mean, right? You you were you were launched into your adulthood into a world that was trying to figure out how to integrate. And you left a, a very insulated community of African-Americans to go into a very white community where you cut your teeth and learned your professional uh, skill set. And then you dove back into the home community for a while, but then you spun back out and got some additional training so that you could pivot your career. And then you went and dove all the way into Northwest Arkansas, um, South, but not South, as I'm starting to say now. I think that's going to be my, you know how you have South by Southwest? I think of Fayetteville, Northwest Arkansas as being South, but not South. Because <laughs> it, it, it has Southern accents with a little splish splash of Midwest and a little something. I don't know if they even know what it is. Um, it's just, it's a different kind of place. It's different. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they have clarity in their identity. It's yeah. it's not something I can put my finger on. I'm sure yeah. people who live there. It's a very uh, fluid identity. Yeah, identity. yeah. yeah. It's very fluid. Mm -hmm. that, that's, I guess that's a good way to put it. Um, but at the time I came in, you know, I would use the word resistance um, as to describe my reception or lack thereof uh, going in. Um, and it was just the way it was. Um, I am thankful for the people who took time with me um, and provided access because um, it was very much needed. Uh, uh, I I could have I could have failed at any point in time, and nothing, little, no noise would have been made about it. Um, I'm very fortunate that I have the husband I have, he would have uh, come to my defense and did. Um, uh, and there were uh, a few other African-Americans um, on the faculty and, and a couple of, of white administrators who uh, really came to my defense at a time when it was very much needed uh, because I was under attack and I wasn't the only one. Because as I said, we were not a commodity that was wanted. And I think um, it's worth pointing out, you are one of the first African-American women to be tenured in the College of Education and Health Professions at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville. One of the first. One of the very few. And there are not that many to this day. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something people may not understand. Um, we are rare. We, we are rare. And that's not to, to put us on any pedestal. It's simply the gauntlet that one has to go through to, first of all, complete a doctorate degree and then to get a position and to be tenured uh, within to run the gauntlet of, of, of tenure uh, successfully. Uh, and then after that experience, not leave the profession altogether because you've just been beaten up, you know, so badly by what you had to endure. It's rough. And it's not just rough for African-Americans, uh, but we have a particularly uh, sharp point of that sword that is always aimed at us, at all people of color, um, at women. Um, and, you know, it's it's still an entity that's predominated by white men. 
they still make the major decisions. They still hold the senior uh, leadership and con control policies. They control access and egress. Uh, there are more of us who are attaining to those uh, levels, but it's slow. It's very slow going. And so I'm thankful for those that helped me along the way of every hue and gender. And, and there were many. I, there's no way. Uh, God, being gracious and, and merciful, put people in my path that blessed me to survive and thrive a situation that could have completely destroyed me. Uh, it caused a lot of stress. I, I know that. I, I do want to also uh, just tap on that idea of control a little bit too, so that maybe we can broaden some conversations for some people. It's not just a control as a here I am standing here holding the bag closed and I, I choose who it is I'm pulling uh, the opportunities out for. But control, when, when, when you do not have diversity of people who are the gatekeepers, then the pathways are designed for the people who they are like. And so one of the reasons why it's so hard and, and it's a reason why I honestly, in, in full transparency, do not like the idea of ever returning back to working in higher education. I'm saying I won't ever do it, but I, I don't like the notion is that when you have largely men and largely white men who are the decision makers, the senior, uh, administrators, they are looking to their experience and the experiences of their friends as what it is you what it takes to be successful. So um, one of the things I came to learn as an adult, I don't mind sharing this in this, this is my channel, um, is that there are a whole class of white men who accomplish. I'm not saying all, but some accomplish their PhD processes by having their girlfriends or wives as their transcribers or some other kind of research capacity assistant and whatnot. That didn't exist for you. Well, you know, I, I, and I don't, I don't fault them if they can get somebody else to type. No, it. I do. Where I fault it is in expecting that a, a woman could come into that situation and take care of all of her own research all of her coursework, mm. all of her family commitments and whatnot. And mm. she ought to be able to meet that standard without any other kind of accommodation when you as a male did not do that yourself. Well, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's complicated because some people will say, well, you know, you should, you should have known that you should have expected that you should have been prepared. And if you didn't think you could, you know, stand the heat, you shouldn't have come in the kitchen. And that's one way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. Um, but the reason that I, I answered your original question the way I did, talking about the advocates, getting the truth, getting the knowledge, mm -hmm. if you've got somebody who sees you as someone worth investing in, and I was fortunate to find people like that along the way, mm -hmm. they will take the time to let you know, oh, yes, you do have to write. And yes, you have to have more than this number of articles, which somebody might have told you. And yes, you need to be on committees. And yes, you need to be going to these conferences. And yes, you need to be presenting. I, I'd never been a professor before. There were no professors in my family. There were teachers, but there were no uh, people who had gone the faculty route in my family. So mm -hmm. I did not bring that knowledge base with me. 
-hmm. That's something that one has to attain or gain access to. So you learn the rules of the road. There are rules. You know, one does not come into the faculty teaching a full load of classes when you're on tenure track because you will not have time to write and research and build the kind of collegial relationships, uh, you know, for the politics that are so important for, for tenure. You don't have time to, 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 you meet yourself and you end up getting all the classes that the senior faculty don't want to teach, the ones that have the higher student numbers. You know, you're dealing with a lot of entry level folk and, you know, they take up a lot of time. You know, you're you're meeting with advisees and these other folks doors are closed or, you know, they have they have office hours that are, you know, that long. Um, you know, it's 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 a it's a it's a game with its own set of rules. And if you want to win, you better learn more of them than you don't uh in order to be successful and i just think people ought to be honest about that i mm -hmm. think it's one of the most wonderful jobs i've ever had because i love teaching mm -hmm. and i love being able to have impact on people's lives and see them go out into a field that i love and become a real blessing uh to kids and families and communities around the nation and around the world um so let me say that i i do not regret my journey it was rough in some times, but so is everybody's. You know, that's how we learn. That's how you, you gain wisdom. But you ask me what people need to know, understand as much as possible the game you are getting in. Mm -hmm. Get the truth. Don't take the party line. Keep asking questions until you find out what you really need to know. Yeah. Follow people who are successful, okay? Don't don't come in there and, and on some sheet of paper let them give you what the what the rules and regs are. Not the one two three ABC, huh? No, you, you get the real deal. Deal, deal. Because mm -hmm. the things that you don't know are the things that can kill you. Mm -hmm. So you know that that is that that's very important. And again, try to understand that this is really what you want to do. Yeah. I love being on the stage and the university classroom as, as the K-12 classroom was my stage. That's where I was able to operate. That's where I was able to perform. But it was for what I hoped was the greater good mm -hmm. um, and to, to challenge minds and to push people, you know, beyond where they thought they could go to see them accomplish things that they weren't sure they were able to accomplish. I love that kind of thing. That's 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 the water I love to swim in. So, yeah, there were some rough things and some tough times, but everybody has those things. I just want people to get as much knowledge and information, whatever the field you're going in, uh, it, on the front end, front load as much as you possibly can. And you can do that. Do your homework. Spend some time, you know, finding out what this world is that you think you might want to go into and the nuances you know that go along with being a woman you know being a person of color coming from a different part of the country you know your age whatever it might be uh, you know get as informed become as informed as you possibly can because i i think that it makes you better prepared for what's going to come. I'm thankful for what I knew. I'm thankful for what I picked up along the way. Um, I would love to have been more knowledgeable and it's what I've urged other people to do that mm -hmm. think they you know, want to go this route. And I must say, 
that you know young african americans coming after me um some of them have been more uh prepared more informed more focused on what it was that they wanted to do uh and were able to ascend farther and faster than i was at this same institution um some of it was the work of your father and others uh, who had been there, who were about affirmative action, because that's what it was. Uh, people working in a way to help people uh, be successful, not give them a handout, uh, but but a, a hand up, you know, mm -hmm. where, where they could use their skills and abilities and climb and do the things they were very capable of doing. Somebody had to be about pushing some of those doors open that were resistant. Uh, to us being there simply because of our gender or the color of our skin. Um, and that has to fall and it is falling. Um, and the society is better off for it. All right. Let's see. Next question. I, I don't even have follow up for that one. <laughs> well, I always do have follow up, but we're going to get back on task. What are the best resources that have helped you along the way? My faith uh, would have to be number one because it's been tested. Um, and, and I'm not unique uh, in that by any stretch of the imagination because you make decisions, you make choices, you get yourself in situations and sometimes you plain don't know how you're going to get out of this. <laughs> I'm like, what did I do? You know, was I a bad person in another life? You know, what, what, why is this happening to me the way it's happening? Um, you just, you can't figure it out. Um, so you have to trust. You pray, a lot of prayer, a lot of self-searching and reflection um, about what you've, what you've invested and if you're willing to walk away from that or if you think you just need to hang in there and you know see if you can't press through um and my faith um the good lord has always been that rock for me um when i couldn't see it he did and eventually he opened the doors that needed to be open and he closed some doors that needed to be closed and i'm thankful i am thankful it's humbling um you learn really quick uh <laughs> That working in your strength, that's a loser for me. Uh, I have to work in the strength of a higher power um, that does not change on me and is always there and that I can always turn to. Uh, so that would be number one. Uh, number two, uh, my family, starting with my father, who was my, my path setter. <laughs> you know, he, he was my hero. Um, as I watched him build his career, build his life um, as a professional, as a father, as a pastor, as a community influencer, um, before there was such a thing, you know, before that particular term, um, I watched him. I watched him and, and he with my mother because they were a team uh, and their impact on us uh, as a family and on the community at large, the way they carried themselves um, with such grace 
and such honor and dignity and devotion uh, and commitment to excellence. That's what I grew up with. So it was just natural for me to expect that of myself and the people around me because that's what I lived. That's what was expected uh, of people around me. Um, and then my husband, um, William Collier. <laughs> Your boyfriend. Uh, yeah, my best friend, my lover, my husband, you know, my companion. Um, God blessed me with the right person. And I'm thankful for that uh, because it's been a 40 plus year journey that gets better all the time. And, you know, when you can say that, it's a blessing. You, you don't take credit for that. You just thank God uh, because there are too many shipwrecks out there for us to think that we had anything to do with this. We could have been one of those easily. Uh, so I'm, I'm very thankful. When he, when he met me, he was looking for a companion who would challenge him as well as compliment him. And it's been a joy to do that. Um, and we, we go at it <laughs> at times because sometimes he comes down on something and I can't understand for the life of me why he would have that perspective. And likewise, he does the same with me. But that, you know, iron, steel, sharp and steel, mm -hmm. you know, I love that, that uh, uh, analogy because we come out to me sharper and smarter and better informed from those, you know, interactions. Um, uh, he inspires me. He believes in me. He would move earth and heaven for me, has done it, given up practices, moved places, taken other jobs so I could pursue what I wanted to do. Um, like I said, I thank God for him. He is my mate. He is my match. And part of that that's funny to your children is that y'all were not too to like go at it like that in front of us when we were growing up. Y'all always function in the unit as a team. Uh, now, now you got conversations. We sometimes hear them conversations come up out of the basement, 1409. Uh, so, but it was never like a raising your voice at each other or anything like that. So oh, yeah. it really has been um, eye-opening and in sometimes entertaining as an adult. <laughs> To be in an environment and see y'all go, I'm like, oh, that's where I get it from. Okay, <laughs> that is, Ooh, that is. <laughs> it's a joy, actually. It's a joy. Well, you know, you're 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 married, but you're still two different people, mm -hmm. and you know, nobody should want to minimize, you know, or you know, subjugate that you want to bring all that you have to a relationship because that makes it richer, you know, and things that you need to, you know, get rid of over time, you know, good Lord makes those things, you know, clear to you. Um, and you also come together more and more as one. And, and the beauty of, of being married as long as you find out that, that the, the journey continues. The growth continues. I'm still learning things about him, you know, after being married to him for <laughs> over four decades that I didn't know when we got married. And likewise with him, because there's there's different seasons of life and you change as you're in those different seasons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, 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 it's remarkable. It's humbling. It's joy filled. It's taxing sometimes. You know, it's all of that. But in the end, 
we said love covers all it really does and the love gets richer and it gets deeper um and sweeter <laughs> and love oh, comes work, though. that love <laughs> does come with work well that's 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 what i've been describing to you mm -hmm. oh, yeah. it, it's a journey <laughs> every day <laughs> <laughs> but, oh that's beautiful um, it, it has been for us <laughs> uh, what is a uh, one common myth about your profession as an educator that you would like to debunk really quickly those that can do those that can't teach i had I a feeling you would come back to that one <laughs> i resent that how in the world can you teach somebody something that you don't know or that you aren't very efficient at that's ridiculous <laughs> that's all i have to say about that <laughs> <laughs> no said no said all right this one ought to be a little fun if you could step into my shoes what would you have asked yourself that I didn't? I guess maybe um, what being a parent has meant along this journey. Mm -hmm. Because to me, if you really do it right, you live with your children, not around them. So everything that's impacting you, you know, is impacting them, you know, and one needs to be cognizant of that and the the impacts effects uh that it's having on them uh but also the blessing of being a parent um on that journey and i would i would take nothing for that um it has enriched us to birth children who God blesses to grow up and become our good friends and buddies and confidence and colleagues as adults. That's an amazing experience to me. Literally, literally amazing. Uh, because my children are among my best friends. <laughs> now, and you can be that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that was not the situation growing up. We were loved. There was definitely a there was there were roles. <laughs> there, there, there's a difference. But I have such respect for you all, for your perspectives, for the way you live your lives, for your fearlessness. Uh, I love that. I love that. And it was something that we wanted for you. Uh, it's one of the reasons we made the moves that we did because we wanted you exposed to a broader world where you saw the possibilities and you were willing to reach for them. You were prepared to, 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 to catch hold of them and run with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, uh, I love being able to talk about uh, the blessing of being a parent and what that has meant to watch our children grow up and um, become you know, parents themselves and entrepreneurs and professional people um people who i truly admire as young gifted and black <laughs> well i'll tell you I'm, I'm, a, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret i was i was talking to will uh my brother and uh <laughs> my brother your son as, as you have created this cadence my brother your son um <laughs> and i i just about felt my chair laughing because he's now a preschool teacher yes and of your two children if you could have predicted which of us might have become a preschool teacher, which would it have been, me or him? 
when we were young. Honestly, your brother. That's good, because I never would have been that. <laughs> but but what's so funny about it is that he had the opportunity to see you um, go through your career. And he was very honest when he was talking to me about it. Um, and, and folks will see that on his interview. Um, but what, what was profound, he said, life has taught him an appreciation um, for the respect of the profession that he didn't have before. He said at a time he saw being a preschool teacher, something he looked down on, like you do that if you can't do something better. And now he's like, no, the, the, the myth that he was exposing was that you can't be fulfilled and feel successful and feel impactful in a, in a profession like that. He was like, no, this is an amazing profession to be in right now. And just to see the joy in his face when he talks about his work now, I've never seen that in his face, not even when he was on ESPN, you know, <laughs> coaching <laughs> championship teams and whatnot. Uh, I didn't see the kind of joy that I see with him uh, now. And it's just, it's phenomenal to be able to see that. So um, thank you for that perspective on, um, on, on something that I could have asked you that I didn't. And uh, now I, this is my funnest one. Uh, we'll see how you take this one because you know me literally better than anybody else in the world. <laughs> This is the segment called Spill the Tea. What part of my business do you want to reveal to the streets? <laughs> Something you think people ought to know about me that you, they probably don't. Or it can be a question you can ask me that you think I should answer. I think that um, if I were to, to describe a, a characteristic of you that people would want to be aware of is that you are one of the best advocates for facilitating the success of other people I have ever seen. It's a passion. It's a passion. And you are working it into a part of your profession as a consultant, you know, entrepreneur, um, to facilitate the success of individuals and systems and individuals within those systems. You know, I've watched you do it within the academy. Uh, I've watched you do it uh, with state departments, um, be they on the education uh, or, or science advocacy or business side. Um, I've seen you do it with uh, foundations. Um, your heart and your mind coming together to facilitate the success of individuals pursuing their goals and systems working to affect whatever impact it is that they are seeking within their institution. I've, I've, I've not seen anyone do it better up close and personal, uh, particularly at the point in life where you are. Um, and you're able to do it without bringing harm to yourself or you figure out, you, you always sensing 
you know, when hurting, when helping you is hurting me, and you know, and this is the spirit that Lord gives you a sense that okay, you know, I may need to make an adjustment here because some people, you know, do it to their detriment. But there's a wisdom in the way you approach it. There's a, a tenacity and a and a focus, razor like focus, uh, where you cut away the crap real quick, <laughs> get down to the nitty gritty of what it is we're trying to accomplish here, what is possible what resources are available and how to pull all that together, you know, and get all these folk in the car going towards Chicago and keep it on the road, you know, it's, it's your <laughs> going in a ditch. Um, that's a skill and talent few people have. Um, and I've seen the benefit, you know, in my own work as, as you have assisted uh, your dad and I, and I've seen it in your work uh, with others across the nation um, uh, in, in various uh, entities. And so, yes, that's, uh, that's what I would tell people about you, which is why your phone needs to ring off the hook because people need you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, 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 I will, in transparency, confess that it, it has taken some time for me to learn how not to do it to my detriment because I, I have done it to my detriment in, in past as I was learning, but, uh, but yes, I, 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 I hope that I have begun to do it more healthily and wisely um, because you're right. I don't think I could have said it better than that. I mean, when people ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? I just want to help people be happy, <laughs> be aligned with what it is that they want to do and whatnot. And, um, and, and, the best word I have uh, run across in my in my readings and my studies is that I'm I'm highly empathic, um, and when you're, it's one of the reasons why the character I most identified with on Star Trek: The Next Generation was actually the counselor Deanna Troy. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but that was giving me a vocabulary for something that I would be able to reference when I got older uh, later in life. Um, and empaths have to be very careful. Um, if you do not have discipline, if you are not careful about the people you allow around you in your space, you can get into a very negative headspace um, when you're trying to do your work. And then you're not able to do the work that God put you here to do. And I'm thankful that I've had people who came into my life who helped me, um, even the people who came in to try to harm me. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for the experience because I got stronger and I figured out what I needed to do to be in the best shape to do this work that I that I've been called to do. So I thank you for that. I thank you for that. That's some good tea to spill. That, that was right. tasty. Um, now, uh, I want to give you a chance to let our listeners and our viewers uh, know uh, what have you got going on? And how can people connect with you online? First, I want you to talk about those beautiful things that are on the shelf behind you. I want to give you a chance to go ahead and talk about what are you doing now that you're retired from having educated half of America? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm keeping somewhat of my, my challenge to myself to write. I, I write curriculum uh, based upon children's literature uh, that I love that I feel can be utilized to teach literacy skills, to get our kids up and running when it comes to reading and do it in fun ways that teach them the basics, but help them fall in love with books and in love with, with print and text. So I have been busy writing uh, and this is our first set 
of uh, Dr. Marta's Literacy Learning Guides. Uh, this doesn't sound like you're retired. That doesn't sound like you're retired at all. Uh, your your father keeps reminding me of that. <laughs> back of that book. I want to see the back of that book. I, I saw oh. some... <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. Does she look like she's retired, y'all? No. Mm -mm. Well, it, it keeps me out of trouble. Uh, but yes. What's the name is, of your company? Uh, the name of my company is Marta Collier Educational Systems and Services. Um, we provide products such as the curriculum guides, which can be purchased by uh, institutions or individuals, uh, depending on what your needs are. Uh, they are geared for younger learners, early learners uh, from uh, three to seven years of age. Uh, we also provide training in uh, the curriculum uh, themselves, how to facilitate that, how to do the instruction. Um, and we are, have been doing digital uh, versions of our uh, lessons, which we are calling our uh, SRI Digi. <laughs> <laughs> what does SRI stand for? Well, we are, are, you know, trying to uh, get kids school ready, School Readiness Institute. Uh, we were actually doing this kind of training uh, in person here at our headquarters, uh, but then a thing called COVID came along. And so we had to pivot. But even within that, it was a good thing because we learned ways of using the technology to still make ourselves available to our clientele. So now we're delivering uh, our uh, literacy learning guide lessons digitally. We have clients uh, that we've served here in Georgia. We have some we have served in uh, Kansas. Uh, we have others we have served in North Carolina and most recently in Italy. Uh, so we even have an international aspect of the outreach that we have now. And that's something that we are very committed to uh, being, taking this work wherever it needs to go to be of help to children, families, institutions that have the responsibility of the care and education of young children. So. I just love looking at that book. Can you hold it up one more time? Because I think for any student who was trained by you, they're going to recognize something in that. That's her in her suit, in her <laughs> uniform. Anybody who was ever taught by my mother is going to know what I mean when I say that's her in her <laughs> uniform. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so... Uh, other than buying the book, um, I, I, once you have a chance, uh, you have a Patreon. If it's okay, I'll go ahead and share that with the listeners yeah. as well. Um, yeah. And just to explain that a little bit uh, from our conversations, you know, the Patreon is for if you don't have a child in your life, but you believe in this kind of work and you want to support having more of these kinds of uh, curriculum units available, you can join on there just like you would for uh, your favorite comedians or uh, other kinds of artists and creators and, and educators. Uh, we want to make sure, uh, I, I, I see the value of making sure there are resources like that um, available because I know I didn't I didn't have that when I was coming through school. I didn't have, not, not what's coming through the early elementary uh, period, not at all. That That's not what my books look like. <laughs> well, a different time, uh, you know, and I was fortunate to <clears throat> to be teaching at a time where there was a return to children's literature um, as a way of, of, of teaching uh, reading. And I just became convicted that it makes better sense. And you can see, you know, it's it's been my passion, you know, collecting and using this, particularly African-American children's literature 
all my professional career, to teach within context, to build the lessons, to draw the vocabulary out of a real story that a child can feel a connection to because they've read it or it's been read to them, you know, and they can always pull it out and go through it again. You know, I, I love, you know, my, the ways that we can teach our history, you know, and I'm a big advocate of, of what they call picture books because the pictures help tell the story. So mm -hmm. if the child is not quite text ready yet, they can still figure out a lot of what's happening in the story from looking at the pictures and what beautiful illustrations, you know, that we have uh, these days and times where our children can see themselves. They can see their people uh, and on the pages of those stories. So that's the other reason why I'm a huge advocate of utilizing children's literature that reflects, you know, our entire culture um, and, and the, the depth and breadth of our story. I kind of think that's got to be an advantage for the majority culture as well to be able to go ahead and see some of that diversity, because as you pointed out earlier in your journey, um, it helped you to be exposed to the cultures of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, how, how much richer were those children's lives by having had a positive encounter with an African-American like you coming through there? They, they were better exposed to what the greater world um, um, might have to offer them as well. So it just seems like it's it's beneficial to everybody. It just seems like no. I, I totally agree. I totally agree because too often uh, children from majority culture are very isolated. Mm -hmm. And when they come out into the world, and one day more than likely they will, uh, they can often lack experience and 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 knowledge, uh, background knowledge that would help them to interpret situations and not step in holes, put their feet in their mouths, you know, stumble over things. Some of them very unintentionally, simply mm -hmm. because they have not had the exposure mm -hmm. to people of other cultures. They've been, you know, in encapsulated. Is that the word I'm looking for? Mm -hmm. You know, they've been in this cocoon uh, where everything is white and everything that, you know, determines life around me is all about whiteness. Um, and that is a big part of life, but so is being Asian and, and African and African-American and Asian-American and you know uh, Latino and Latino-American. I mean, we are a rich fabric. We are, we are a patchwork quilt. You know, we, we are- We're a human race. It's, it's the actual yeah. only race. We're a human yeah. race, we're all bound. And, and I mean, look at this, look at the shelf, the color, the color, you know, the color of life. That's what makes it so rich and powerful and invigorating and something that you truly want to live because there's always another, another adventure around the corner. If you just keep looking, open yourself up to it. I would give nothing for my journey, for all these precious little ones that I got a chance to meet, you know, from everywhere from Russia to, you know, backwoods, Arkansas, you know, Georgia, you know, Indiana, you're all over. You know, I've, I've taught kids from, from China and Korea and they all enrich my life, every last one of them. And good Lord willing, you know, we're not through yet. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. So uh, what is your website if people want to go ahead and learn more about your business? 
Uh, I am uh, askdrmarta.com or martacollier.com uh, is our updated version, martacollier.com. Mm-hmm. And my email is info at askdrmarta.com. Uh, and if you go to my website, you'll find other uh, information about us, our services, uh, what we have done in the past, what we are about now. Um, you will see some of our story uh, from those we've already worked with uh, in the past and just get a sense of who we are and what it is that uh, we're trying to do uh, to make a difference, to make a difference, to be a blessing. Very good. Very good. Is there anything else you'd like to share today? I would just to thank uh, my beautiful daughter here for this opportunity uh, to be a part of your uh, channel this programming that you're doing uh, an opportunity to talk about our journey and what we're trying to do and I just want to uh, pray God's blessings upon the work that you're doing and all your many many colleagues I'm just so thrilled and excited about the work of young people young African-American people and young people of every hue today you guys are taking us places we could only dream of and the journey continues like we're doing what you said that you're supposed to do. You've done your job, seating into us, and that's our job to take over the time and move forward. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Mom. I appreciate you for always supporting the things that I do. (laughs) It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for season two of Showing Our Sass. If you've been here for a little while, you're already subscribed. If not, go ahead and get with it. We want you to like, we want you to comment, we want you to subscribe, and we want you to share. Thanks so much for your support, and I'm looking forward to having great conversations with you all this season.